Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. This is our podcast live stream series that we have once a week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and get into introducing our guests for the, the, the morning, not the evening. Um, Erica is somebody very, very special to me. She sponsored me a few years ago whenever I was in a place of sickness, maybe. I don't know. I was in the bondage of self. I will definitely say that. Um, and Erica brought me back to the basics of the program and brought me back to the book because I had wandered away from it, not even knowing. And she really taught me, um, you know, I talked to you guys a lot about the importance of a home group and showing up for the newcomer in the home group and what to do. And all of that was stuff that she instilled in me. You know, a lot of the stuff that I tell you guys about how to get sponsees is stuff that she instilled in me. And so a lot of the wisdom that I passed down to you, I get, I got from her. Um, so I'm super excited to have her on. Um, she is still somebody so close to me. She's still somebody that I know that I can call, um, that I can still read inventory to, that I can still tend stuff with, and she'll always show up. So Erica, if you could just introduce yourself to us and give us a little bit of background on what led you to getting sober. Cool. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on here with you guys this morning. So my name is Erica Boyce and I am a alcoholic. And just to kind of preface, drugs are a part of my story as well, but I'll limit that. Um, but that is that is part of part of what led me to where I'm at today, too along with alcohol, right? And so um, so I was born and raised in, in a small town called Paris, Texas, which is about Northeast from here, from the Dallas area. Uh, really close to Oklahoma, population of like 20,000 people, very small, everybody knows everybody's business, and that's just kind of what I grew up in. Uh, my mom was an IV meth user um, up until I was the age of 14, and my dad was kind of in and out of my life, you know, periodically here and there. And so, I learned at a very early age how to be a chameleon. And what I mean by that is because I grew up in two different homes, I had to play two different roles. At my mom's house, I could be very myself, very comfortable. At my dad's house, it was very strict and rigid and very militant. And so I had to mind my P's and Q's there. And so early on, um, long before alcohol came into play, I had to learn how to be two different people. And so um, fast forward a little bit, uh, I, I drank alcohol for the first time whenever I was nine years old. My mom gave me a wine cooler. Uh, I think it was Seagram's or something like that. I don't really remember the actual thing. I just remember she gave me one and I drank it and I wanted another. And she told me no. So the allergy was alive and well at a very early age. But I remember like the effect that it produced, right? Like I remember that that feeling that I had inside that I'd never fit in, that I was never okay. The alcohol, you know, subdued that. And I was able to, you know, be on a level playing field. Um, by the age of 12, I started dabbling into some other outside issues, um, you know, pot, taking pills, things like that. And by the age of 13, I was in full-blown alcoholism and it had taken hold. And like I said, my mom got sober whenever I was 14. And so me, um, I got to kind of do whatever I want. My dad just kind of quit picking me up and I got to, you know, run wild and, and do all the things that I wanted to do. And and so that's what I did. I had no, I had no guidance on how to live life. No one ever sat me down and taught me like how to handle emotions or identify feelings or any of that. So I just kind of, what my brain told me is like, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do. And I want to change the way that I felt, even though in the moment I couldn't see that. Hindsight, looking back, I can today. And so um, I had a lot of trauma that happened to me throughout my life. And, and part of that was sexual assault, sexual trauma. Um, I lost my best friend at the age of 16. Um, she died in a car wreck. I carried the weight of the guilt and shame um, of that because she called me 13 minutes before the wreck happened for me to pick her up. And 
I told her I couldn't and she said, I love you. And I didn't say it back. And so I held on to that for years. And as this is going on, like my alcoholism continues to progress, right? Like I'm continuing to find more things to put into my body to change the way that I feel. And my mom at this point is newly sober and now she's wanting to step up and, and be a parent. And, uh, you know, the teenage me and the alcoholic me was not going to let that happen. Um, I was very rebellious. You know, I, I would sneak out. I mean, it got to the point where my mom painted the windows shut and put a padlock on the inside of the door with a key to try to keep me in. And I still found a way to sneak out and leave to go get more alcohol. Um, and this is very early on. Um, I think at this point I had to have been like 16 or 17. And so fast forward a little bit, you know, my, <laughs> the funny thing is, is like, I got sober whenever I was 20. Um, but there was so much stuff that happened in that probably, I, I would say, I, I probably stayed not sober for a good six years before my twenties, but, um, leading up to that every weekend I was partying, I was hanging out with older kids, college kids and all those things. And so, uh, the summer of June, 2010, well, the spring of June, 2010, uh, my grandmother raised me pretty much my whole life. I was always at her house. Um, she passed away March of 2010 and within a week of her dying, I completely spun out of control and there was not a sober breath that I drew for the next 90 days. And so my mom calls me, I guess it was the end of May of that year. And she tells me that she wants me to go to treatment. Apparently I missed my intervention on Mother's Day that they had planned, told them I'd be there and I never showed up. And, um, and so I ended up, you know, talking about my mom, mom's like, I'm cutting off the cell phone. And at 20 years old, your cell phone is a big deal. Um, you got to have the cell phone. And this was God, 11 years ago. And I told her, fine, I'll go to treatment. And so June 2nd of 2010 originally started my journey into, into recovery. Right. And I would love to say that I was one of those that came in, jumped in and was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. I wasn't, um, I met a guy in treatment um, it was like a little sick Romeo and Juliet. We were going to be together forever. Um, we are not together today. Thank God. <laughs> but we were, and if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector test, I would have told you we were going to be right. Because my issue just isn't like these, you know, these substances. My issue is, is like, I will use anything and anyone that I can to change the way that I feel. So I don't have to sit with me. Right. I don't have to deal with that empty hole that's going on inside but I don't see it. That's, that's, that's delusion, right? The delusion is, is I can't see it. I'm unaware. I'm asleep to what my truth is. And so fast forward a little bit, three months later, he's getting high. I'm like, okay, this isn't going to work. I'm, I'm moving into an Oxford house. And, um, this, this woman there, her name was Maggie. Um, she was like, Hey, why don't you come to this meeting with me? And I went to my very first ever meeting and, you know, I, I ended up falling in love with that meeting. And then I started doing AA with it because um, I'd been doing NA and there's nothing wrong with NA. It just wasn't the program for me. I fell in love with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was this woman that walked up to me. Her name was Scarlett. And she was like, hey, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no. And she said, you're going to be, I'm going to be your sponsor. And I said, great. I didn't have to ask. Right. I got, I found my out. Right. Someone told me that they're going to be my sponsor. Um, and, it, and it worked okay for a while. I just wasn't willing yet. Right. And so the, the first six months of sobriety, I was doing all the same things in sobriety that I had done in my addiction. I was using men. I was driving one guy's house, guy's car from one Oxford house to another to go see another guy. I mean, I was still showing up the same way. And at that moment, I realized like, dude, drugs and alcohol are not my problem, right? Like <laughs> I've been sober six months at this point and I'm still doing all the same things, feeling all the same way. Like what is wrong with me? You know, Scarlett ended up firing me because I argued with her a lot. I was very argumentative. Um, I always had to prove my point and why I wasn't wrong. And she let me go and I was pissed. I was so mad that she was like, don't ever call me again. <laughs> but I'd like went off on her. And so I ended up finding this other sponsor. Her name is, uh, her name was Lauren. And um, I'm talking to Lauren on the phone and I'm like, yeah, you know, or I, I ended up walking into this other meeting and seeing Lauren and hearing her speak. And like the night before I'd like fallen to my knees at this point, I was like nine months sober. And I was like, okay, if there is a God, then like put someone in my life that's going to help me because I can't do this anymore. Because I had filled my plate with all this busy work of like school, 
you know, doing the Oxford thing, being part of the chapter, all these things. Like I was doing everything. I was getting up at 6 a.m. and going 100 miles an hour until 2 a.m., falling asleep and waking up and doing the same thing again. And that was not keeping me content at all. I was getting to the point where I was burnt out. And so that next night, it was a Tuesday night, I walked into this meeting where there was like 150 people in there and it was very intimidating and I was scared. And this, this woman speaks and I hear her and I was like, I'm going to have to ask her. And I go to her and I ask her and she was very, and I'm not intimidated by women at all, but her, I was completely intimidated by. And um, she ends up telling me, you know, get your book. We'll meet on this day. And so like we sit down and I start talking to her and I'm like, yeah, my first sponsor was horrible. I hated her. Like she, she just couldn't, you know, she was telling me what to do all the time. You know, I'm, I'm going down the list of why this woman was a horrible person. Right. And she asked me, she said, who's your sponsor? Who was your sponsor? And I said, Scarlett. And she started laughing. And I was like, oh God, you know her, don't you? She's like, she's my sponsor. And I was like, okay, clearly God wants me in this lineage, right? And thank God for it, right? Like, thank God, God, God knew what I needed long before I did, long before I even had a relationship with this power, right? And um, I ended up going through the work with her and have this amazing experience, right? And lo and behold, because I am what uh, the book likes to call the educational variety. I learn very, very slowly. You know, I, I got to step nine and made some amends, had some cool experiences with that. And then lo and behold, I rested on my laurels, rested on those past accomplishments that I had checked the boxes on these things. And March of 2012, I went back out. And because I wasn't actively practicing a 10th step, um, never. I never practiced a 10th step at all. And then lo and behold, slowly prayer, prayer meditation went, not the reviews went, and then nobody wanted what I had. So I didn't have any sponsees and I, I went back out and I was out there for about three months. And I was, and I, at that point I was about three months pregnant with my son, Corbin. And, um, during that time period of being sober, I met who is my husband today, Henry, but he and I relapsed together and we went back out and uh, my new sobriety date is now May 25th, 2012. And so hopefully within a month, I'll be celebrating nine years of sobriety, God willing. But, but yeah. And so leading up to that, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more in my story with my, with me being sober. There's a lot in there with me being in my alcoholism, but I, I can tell you that I've experienced a lot harder things in sobriety than I ever did whenever I was out there in my addiction. And if it wasn't for the 12 steps, if it wasn't for the outside help that I had to seek, then I wouldn't be sober today. But yeah, that's a little bit of my story. So hopefully that was good enough on time. Yeah, no. <laughs> One of the things, and I just thought about this as you were talking about Scarlett and Lauren, and I don't remember I don't know if you remember telling me this, but Kristen's on here and I told this to her and I also, I often share this uh, piece with people, but I remember one time you said that there are seed planters and seed harvesters. Mm -hmm. And I would love if you talked about that and what that means and in terms of sponsorship and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So so early on, um, my, my first stint of, of sobriety and recovery, whenever I'd worked the steps, you know, I was sponsoring a bunch of women. Like I was constantly at an H and I, I had three H and I's that I would go to every week. Um, because whenever I got sober again, I lived out, I moved back to Paris. So there wasn't a whole lot of recovery out there, but in Dallas, you know, there was always Homer bound. There was Turtle Creek Manor. There was the, the treatment center that I went to, uh, Maggie's house. I carried the message out there. You know, there was all these different places for you to go to and carry the message. And so one of the things that was impressed upon me very early on is that when Lauren sat me down to go through the work, she said, my job is not to get you through this work so you can stay sober. My job is to get you through this work so you can go help other women carry this message to them so they don't die from alcoholism. And that's one of the things I tell my sponsees across the board, because it's very true. Like, the byproduct is I get to stay sober in this, but the cool thing that I get to do is I get to watch women transform. And so I got through the work probably within 30, 45 days, um, whenever I worked with Lauren. And so at that point I had about 10 months sober and I started carrying the message and I got all these sponsees and I was getting really, really irritated all the time because they would get to step four. Like I knew one, two, three, like the back of my hand, I just can never get them past the inventory. And I remember just getting so frustrated because I'm like, dude, none of them are, none of them are willing to do inventory. 
And, um, and, and Lauren sat me down and she said, you know, some people are going to be the seed planter and then some are going to get to harvest that seed. And, and at the time I didn't really understood what that meant until I finally got, until I finally got to Paris, got a sponsee and took her through the work and sponsored her for about three years. And what I saw was, is that, you know, like Scarlet for me was the seed planter. Lauren got to harvest the seed, right? And, and through that process is, is like the more that I stick with this, the more that I just go with an open heart and an open mind to try to be helpful to these women, like eventually it's going to get to a place where somebody, it's going to stick for somebody. And so, cause I don't know about any of y'all, but I, it was so frustrating, like going in, reading, you know, the first few pages of the book or taking them through stick man or whatever, however you work one, two, and three, and then getting to the inventory piece and they're just fall off. And you're like, man, this is really annoying. But for me that being the seed planter is a lot more rewarding sometimes because later on, there's been plenty of times where I've had women reach out to me way later on um, in sobriety and tell me, thank you for like the things that you've said, because even though they didn't get it then, they got it later. And so regardless of which, what position God has placed for me, regardless of what position God has placed me in, whether I'm the planter or the harvester, I get to be a part of this person's journey. And it's learning that gratitude in that. And so. Yay, I know, I love that. Um, and one of the things that you taught me early on is, is writing inventory. You know, and I remember um, I even texted you like a year after we stopped working together, like, oh, my God, like, thank you so much for instilling these things in me because I would be so crazy and so sick right now with the things that are going on in my life. And so I'm so grateful for that. So do you mind also talking about the inventory process? and yeah. the importance of inventory and all of anything you want to talk about as far as inventory. Yeah. Inventory. Uh, I love inventory. As Stephanie, anybody that knows me in recovery, anytime they call me and they're like, Hey, this is what's going on. I'm like, well, have you written inventory? Um, Cause I love inventory so much. It saved my life and not that it saved my life in early sobriety. It saved my life at like five and a half years sober. Um, so, so to kind of go back a little bit, Whenever I originally got sober in, you know, 2010, uh, whenever I wrote my inventory with Lauren and went over that, I found like 85% of my truth. Like I knew that I wasn't good enough and I knew that I thought I was a piece of crap. I knew like all those things, right? But whenever I actually got pen to paper and had another woman sit across from me and I read this inventory to them and they pointed out some truth, I was like, ugh like punch to the gut. Like I am just, I did not feel better after my fifth step. Not after the first one. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. But through that process and gaining that awareness, it was able to launch me into a different course of action. Right. Because now that I'm aware that these are the things that I do, I'm now given the choice to do something different. Right. And so at about five and a half years sober, this last go the, in this stint of recovery, right? And I had written inventory a million times and I, and I thought I knew like how to write a thorough inventory. Um, I just started working up with who is my sponsor now. Her name is Martile. And I was in this job with this narcissistic boss. It was, it was awful. Anyways, so we ended up have a big falling out. My paycheck bounced. I ended up going to the hospital because I was having a panic attack, all these things, right? The next day I'm sitting outside the bank waiting to cash my check because my paycheck had bounced. And like I said, this is at five and a half years sober. And I'm like, dude, I didn't get sober for this. You know, I don't know if any of y'all have ever had that dialogue, but I do quite often. It's like, I didn't get sober for this shit. You know, uh, like, like I did not get sober for this at all. This is not what we agreed to God, because for some reason I've always had like, and even still this delusional crop up is like, well, I'm sober. So life should be better. And that's just nowhere in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't say that. Nowhere in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says you're going to work these steps and you're going to feel better. Um, you may feel more. There's no doubt about that, but it doesn't tell me that. It tells me that my mental obsession is going to be removed and that's what being recovered looks like, right? And so in saying that, I'm sitting outside this bank and thank God my sponsor, Lauren, because Lauren was sponsoring me at the time, instilled in me like to call no matter what. And I had done that for years. And when I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I'm just, I'm just going to go get drunk. Like I'm done with this. I can't do it anymore. I'm tired of living life this way. You know, life wasn't looking the way I wanted it to. I was falling into some self-pity and, 
I ended up calling Lauren and she didn't answer. And so I called Martile and I told Martile, I'm like, this program doesn't work. AA doesn't work for me. Like I'm done. I'm out. Like I'm tired of this. And, and Martile said, well, let me take you through the book one last time. And if it doesn't work, you can go on your merry way. And I said, fine, it's not going to work. Like I've done all I can do. I've graduated the program. Like this program can't help me anymore. Right. And so we ended up going through this work, thank God. Um, and she showed me how to write inventory in a way that I hadn't seen it done before, right? And not so much the resentment inventory because I knew how to write the resentment inventory. It was more of the fear inventory. The first time I did fear inventory, I really didn't get it. I just wrote down my fears and why I was scared and all those things. But whenever she showed me a new way to write this fear inventory, and it wasn't really even new. Um, no one just had, no one had ever showed me how to do it this way. I started to see how my fears and my belief systems about myself drive the decisions that I make. And they later place me in a position to be hurt every time. And so what I had to do is, is I had to take a look at what am I afraid of? If I'm resentful, I take, so as some as you may know, like in the, in the fourth column, you have your, how are you selfish, right? Which is my motives and what I think. Then you got the dishonest, which a lot of the times, especially when you've been sober a little bit, you're not really lying to people anymore. You're more so lying to yourself. So what is the delusion that I'm in? How am I lying to myself? The self-seeking piece is um, how, what are my actions? How am I showing up because of my delusional thinking and my selfish motives? Um, and then lastly is the fear. And so the way it was broken down to me is like fear is what drives my selfish motives, which in terms contributes to my delusional thinking which makes me act out in my self-seeking actions, right? And so in order to change that, I have to become aware of what I'm doing and how I'm showing up because I can't think my way into right acting. I have to act my way into right thinking. So like an example that I always like to use with people is, let's just say if I'm, you know, resentful at my mom for lying to me, right? It's probably one of the easiest ones. Where, where my selfish motive is, is that, you know, I want, I want people to always be 110% honest with me. Like I expect people to act the way that I would act. I expect people to show up the way that I show up. Right. And with that selfish motive drives my delusional thinking and believing that other people are going to act that way. Right. And then my self-seeking actions being I'm judging people, um, you know, being unforgiving, um, I'm being callous and, and mean and, and, and not talking to people because if they lied to me, then I just shut them out completely, right? I don't allow people to be human. I don't extend grace. And so because of that, I'm in fear that people are judging me. I'm in fear that I'm not good enough. I'm in fear that people are pushing themselves away from me, right? And so what I have to do is I have to change that action, right? So I come into this and I, and I look at the action that I'm taking. And if I'm being judgmental, if I'm being unforgiving, if I'm being those things, I need to take the opposite action, even if I don't want to, right? One of the things my sponsor always tells me is, Erica, you don't get to act the way that you feel anymore. Like you did that whenever you were in your alcoholism, like you don't get to show up that way today, right? And so what I get to do is regardless of how I feel, I need to take the next right action. Because once I start taking that action, that delusional thinking tends to dissipate. I'm no longer lying to myself about how other people should show up because I'm focused on what my action is to be. And because I'm focused on what my action is to be, I'm not driven by that selfish motive. That thought process is no longer selfish because I'm not thinking about well, what they're doing and how they need to show up for me. I'm thinking about how I need to be showing up for others. And in turn, that alleviates that fear that walks me through the fear of not being good enough, that walks me through the fear of judgment, that walks me through the fear of like people pushing themselves away, right? Because I'm no longer showing up that way. And so whenever I look at that and I take those fears, right, and I look at the action that I need to take in that, there's four, there's three questions I ask myself whenever I write fear inventory. So like if I was to do the fear inventory on the fear of not being good enough, well, why do I have that fear? Well, nothing I've ever done has been good enough, right? So where do I set the ball rolling in the fear? So what are the things that I'm not doing that's contributing to me staying in fear? And a lot of the times with that fear in particular is, you know, I am, you know, not weighing out facts and evidence in my life to show the things that I have done that is enough. I am, you know, not showing, um, I'm not showing myself any grace. I don't set the meter for me. I go out based off of other people's belief systems rather than my own. And then that final question is, what would God have me do instead? And sometimes that is, is like, make a list of what is enough today. 
Like what's enough for me to be good enough today, right? Because so many, so many times like I've got this bar way up here and I don't even know what the bar is. I just know I'm not gonna ever hit it. But if I, if I look at what that bar is and I set it for myself then I have the action to take, right? And nine times out of 10, that's the action that gets me out of the fear and I'm no longer paralyzed in that fear. Because the book tells me, and I'm a big book thumper, these people like to call it, so I'm gonna read a little section out of here. The book tells me this short word, talking about fear, somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us mis misfortune we didn't feel we deserved. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Fear is, is what shapes and molds every belief system that I have, every idea that I have, every action that I take. And I have to be watchful of those things. Like there's a reason in step 10, if you're past the inventory, there's a reason in step 10, I have to continue to look for that because those fears will continue to crop up for me, right? I mean, I just had to write fear inventory the other day. I write a lot of fear inventory because I don't like to make decisions without knowing like, hey, what, is, what, what, what does God need me to do? Some people can roll that stuff in their head. Great. If you're one of those people, my hat is off to you. I am not. I have to put pen to paper. Like my head comes up with some insane stuff. And when I'm in fear, especially whenever that coil in my chest is turning and I don't know what to do, I just start making decisions and reacting and taking action on things that I, I have no business even taking. Because what will happen is three or four weeks down the road after I've taken this action, I start getting a little resentful. Or then I start getting a little angry or I'm like, these people aren't doing what I thought they would do. Right. I just had the situation happen with our oldest stepson because of my fear of him leaving and going back to Oklahoma. I did all these things, right? Like I started buying him stuff and going out of my way, taking time out of my day to make sure things are set up for him. And, you know, just last night, he tells us he wants to move back to Oklahoma and it's been three weeks. And my reaction was not cool <laughs> because and, and that's the thing, right? Like I never, I have to learn how to pause and take a step back because what tends to happen is, is I create turmoil and chaos and I think other people are gonna act a certain way or show up a certain way. And those expectations fail me every time. The crazy and insane thing is, is because this is the human condition. This is not just an alcoholic thing. This is very much a human condition as the human condition states is we do these things with the expectation and don't even see that we have the expectation of someone to act a certain way or someone to show up a certain way or someone to do something a certain way. Because as the human condition is, it's selfishness and self-centered. The difference between the alcoholic and, and, and the, the regular human being, which whoever that is, is the fact that I am selfish and self-centered like to the core. Like I am self will run riot and I will push people. I will not physically, I mean, I used to push people physically, but not today. I will push people to their limits. I will manipulate. I will do things. And in my brain, and especially now that I have this little handy dandy toolkit, I will smear God all over that and say, this is what God wanted me to do without me even doing the work around it. Right. And so for me, inventory helps me take a step back and really look at it and say, okay, this is what God would have me do instead. This is where I'm setting the ball rolling in the fear. This is where I set up for me to get resentful to begin with. It's nothing that they did. It's nothing that he did. Like he's just acting like an 18 year old kid. Like that he's doing what he knows how to do. My job is to learn how to live life on life's terms. And sometimes those terms are not very fun to deal with. So that's my spill on inventory. Awesome. Love it so much. Does anybody have a question? Okay. So I know you had talked about your dad earlier. And then what I know from you is he was a big resentment uh, for you, but you ended up making an amends to him and stuff. Do you mind uh, talking about that? Yeah, I'll talk about a couple of men's stories that are pretty cool. Um, so, so my dad and I have always kind of had a strange relationship. I will tell you, I'm more like my father than I am my mother. And it took me years to admit that. So my dad isn't, doesn't have mental illness, doesn't have addiction or alcoholism. Um, I could never understand what was wrong with this man. Okay. So let me just sit that. I thought he was very militant, strict, you know, straight and narrow for the longest time. I could never figure out like, why is he the way that he is? 
Um, in my story, I talked about how my dad abandoned me quite often. So what my dad would do, um, I do not have a relationship with this man today. I haven't talked to him in over seven years. Um, but what my dad would do is very early on, I, I developed this belief system that I'm not good enough. Right. And, and, and it came from him. Not that I think he maliciously did it. Um, if you would ask me 10 years ago, I would have told you, yes, it was. My dad always wanted me to strive to be better and to do better. Um, and he would say statements like, well, you know, you could have got an A plus instead of just an A, you know, just things like that. Right. And so like all these little moments of like, oh, you could have hit 10 home runs instead of five, you know, it was always, you could always do better. It was never enough. And so my dad would kind of just disappear. Um, you know, my dad did try, I'll give him that. He, uh, whenever I was 13 years old, he, he, my grandmother and my aunt, um, tried to get me away from my mom when she was kind of in the grips of her addiction. Um, at that point, I think it was too late. My mom kept it a really big secret for me that she was getting high. And I just chose to stay with her because I needed to take care of her. Um, in my mind, uh, I couldn't leave her alone. My dad had a wife and had my brother and like they had everybody. So I just couldn't leave her alone. So with my dad, you know, if you didn't do things a certain way or show up a certain way, like he would just not talk to you. I, I, I never could really figure out what that was about. And so back in, so whenever I got sober this, the, the first time, um, he got really mad. I was on his insurance. And so I found out they used the insurance for me to go to treatment. Um, and he was pissed that nobody called and told him until he got a bill um, showing or a statement or whatever it was. And apparently he and his dad got into a big argument about it because uh, my papa is the one that helped kind of pay for me to go to treatment, pay the deductible. And so my dad and I, at, I was 34 days sober. My, my papa died the day I got out of treatment, which was another life lesson that life still happens regardless if you're sober or not. I learned that very early. And I sat outside and I was talking to my dad and my dad was, and I was like, yeah, I've got 34 days sober. And he's like, well, we'll talk when you have six months sober. And it was like, yet again, I needed to be, I needed to be better. You know, I needed to be different. And so he and I didn't talk for a while. And um, I remember whenever I sat down with Lauren to go over these amends, the first thing she said, well, which ones are you not willing to make? And I said, my dad, not willing to make that one at all. I don't want to make it. I don't even want to think about it. And she's like, great. That's the first one you're going to make. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And Lauren was a very black and white sponsor. Like you either did it or like she was going to let you go. And so it was like, you got to be kidding me. So I ended up reaching out to my dad. Uh, we're going to meet in Paris at this, this square at the square in Paris. And, um, and I turned around like Paris is about an hour and a half away from Dallas. I, it got, it took me three hours to get there because I turned around so many times driving back to not do it. And then I'd call her and she'd be like, turn the car around. You're going to do it. I turned the car probably around 10 times. Um, cause I was just not like, I was so terrified and she's like, just pray for willingness. And so that's what I did the whole way down there. I'm just praying for willingness. I'm like, God, you better make me willing because this is not going to go well. And so I sit down with my dad and I finally get there and I sit down with my dad and I make this amends. You know, that's the first time I think I ever heard my dad say that he was wrong for certain things. And that was the first time I ever heard my dad say, I love you. And that was whenever I was 19 years old. That may not have been the only time that he told me that he loved me, but that's the first time I heard it. So there is a difference in that. He may have told me whenever I was little and I just don't remember, but that is a moment that I do remember. And so part of my amends was like to continue to try to build a relationship with him because what I did is I pushed him out. Like no differently than he pushed me out, I contributed by pushing him out. I didn't keep him involved in my life, especially as I got older. I didn't reach out to him. I didn't call him. Um, and those were things that I did on my part. And so I did that. And then a few months later, um, I end up finding out I'm pregnant. I tell him that I'm pregnant and he quits taking my calls, quits answering the phone, which is his typical ammo. Um, and I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the pregnancy. It could have been something that he was walking through. I have no idea. Um, we never talked about it. And then I end up having Corbin, my son in September of 2012. And um, my dad shows up to the hospital, unbeknownst to anybody. And, um, you know, we're sitting there and, you know, my mom and my stepmom are there and they're like, oh, do you want to hold Corbin? Do you want to hold Corbin? And he's like, no, no. And they keep pushing the issue, which I'm like, y'all just stop, but they don't. Come to find out he, he, or what he says is, you know, babies are like puppies and then they grow up to be dogs. And I'm like, 
I don't think that is something you say to your daughter who just had your grandchild, but okay. And everybody just got silent and it was very awkward, very uncomfortable. And I'm just like, dude, I want to get the hell out of this hospital. And so fast forward, I don't talk to my dad again for another six months. Um, and then he has this big event happen in his life and he's wanting to change. Right. And so I let him back in again and I'm like, okay, do you want to walk me down the aisle? Cause at this point, Henry and I are going to get married. And he's like, yes. And then three weeks before my wedding, which was January 11th of 2014, he decides to not answer my phone calls, um, not answer my texts, not go pick up his shirt and doesn't even show up to my wedding. And last minute I had to ask my brother to walk me down the aisle. And so, and and since then I haven't talked to him since I haven't asked any questions. I've kind of just was like, Hey dude, like if that's how you're going to be, like, I have to make the decision for myself. Like that's not something I want a part of my life, nor do I want it a part of my son's life. Um, I said it much more meanly than that because I was really angry and in a lot of fear. Um, so, so yeah, so that was kind of the amends process of my dad. And so it just goes to show like, and I tell that story because just because you make an amends with somebody doesn't mean the relationship's going to flourish in anything. Uh, my experience with him was that it didn't. We don't have a relationship today. I don't talk to him today. He doesn't talk to me. We share the same birthday. We don't even say happy birthday to one another. And I'm okay with that today. Had you asked me that like three years ago, I was not okay with it. So about a few months ago, I ended up having to go to trauma treatment. Um, because like I said, there's a lot of trauma that's in my story between sexual assaults, um, a lot of deaths, things like that. And I was getting to the point where it was almost debilitating to learn to live life, even sober. Um, and I was working a program, I was working the steps, I was doing a bunch of EMDR work. I ended up going there and I, I got to do a lot of healing and a lot of work on myself that I finally was ready to work on. I, and I say this because a lot of time when people come in, they have so much more than just alcoholism. Uh, there's, there's a reason why the book encourages seeking that outside help too. Now, if I would have done this early in sobriety, I think I would have gone and drank. Um, I think I needed the time separated from the drink in order to get to where I'm at today. But today, like I have freedom from the fact that like, I don't have to have, you know, I don't have to have certain people in my life to be okay. Like I, I can completely be content and okay with where I'm at today in my life and grow closer with my higher power, whatever that needs to look like. You know, I had another experience with an amends, this guy that I, that I used quite frequently way back when. And so you know, if you're ever worried about like, well, I'm never going to run into this person or I'm never going to see this person. Like this guy, I didn't even put on my amends list. Okay. And half of my amends I did in Walmart in Paris, Texas, because that's just where I ran into people all the time. And I forgot about this guy. So he was in Walmart. I saw him and I was like, oh crap, no. And I bolted down a different aisle and left and I didn't tell anybody anything. And I was like, I'm just going to, we're going to push that one aside. We're going to act like nothing ever happened. And then like, I kid you not, like a week later, I'm back in Walmart and there he is. And like I said, I haven't seen this guy in years, haven't even thought of him, you know, and this was like probably in 2013. And um, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And I was like, well, I'm not going to make the amends because I haven't talked to my sponsor about it. Right. I use that whole excuse. Um, and so I call my sponsor and I leave there and she's like, well, you should probably reach out and try to find him because clearly he's coming up for a reason. And I said, okay. So I reached out to who used to be his best friend and I'm like, Hey, is there, um, you know, Ed, do you have any way of getting hold of this guy? And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, I got that one off my back. I was willing, you know? And so <laughs> I kid you not, I go into Walmart the next time. And there he is. And I'm like, and I'm at the checkout, right? Like, I'm like, dude, we're in the clear. Like, he's not here. And then I look over and there he is. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I ended up, um, like, I was fixing to walk out the door. And I ended up walking around and uh, coming around the store. And I was like, hey, you know, here, you know, here I am, right? And I'm, and I'm nervous. Like, and all I see in his eyes, like, his shoulders are really tense. His eyes are, like, black, cold. Like I really screwed this guy over and, um, and I just made the amends. I don't even remember what I said. I just prayed and whatever came out of my mouth is what came out. And you know, what I told him when I was, I don't remember what I said, what I was willing to do to make it right. Other than like, I wouldn't do that again to him, um, or to any guy moving forward. And like, it was like, as if like, after I had done that and said that, like, he was really, really nice. His shoulders kind of relaxed. His eyes kind of went back to the color they were. And like, we were able to have a conversation and I kid you not, I've not seen that guy since. Never saw him again, haven't heard. And that was, you know, over seven years ago. And um, so like, 
like if you're ever concerned about like, well, I don't think I'm ever going to see this person. Like when God feels the time is right, like God will make it happen. And that, and that has been my experience every time with every step, with every situation, like I may think I know what's best and I may not even remember half the stuff that I did, but, but God's the one that ultimately gets to make that call in my life, not me. So those are kind of my experiences with amends. I love that story. My sponsor just recently told me after going back and forth on if I was going to make amends to this guy that, you, that I've also talked to you about. Um, <laughs> we agreed that I was just going to like mail this letter, not to him, but to some random address, I guess. I don't know. But she said, you have to understand though, that if you see him, that's God telling you that you need to make that amends, you know? And so just, I just love that so much. Like God putting the people in your life, you know, and also too, that like, you even forgot about this person, you know? I never wrote him, I never wrote him on any amends list ever. Like I completely forgot. Yeah. And that's another thing I tell the ladies in next step is, uh, you know, you may, the, if the cool thing about continuing to do this work is God's going to continue to reveal things to you, you know, so you just be as honest and thorough as you can with where you're at, you know, and there's a lot of comfort in that too, I think. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love about you is your desire to seek God and the connection with your higher power and how much you love God. And so can you talk about reliance on God, seeking God, growing with your higher power, anything you want to talk about on your relationship with God? Yeah. So uh, me and God have this weird relationship. (laughs) Uh, I would love to sit here and tell you in these last, you know, 11 years that I've been in in these rooms um, on and off that I've just had this close connection and relationship with God. Like, my idea of my higher power changes constantly. Like there are times where I'm like full-blown Christian, like Jesus all the way. And then there are times where I'm like, dude, it's just energy and whatever energy I can draw from. Sometimes it's nature. And like, this is, you know, sitting in nature and like, this is where I can connect to my higher power. The thing about all these outside religious organizations or outside spiritual organizations and things like that, the cool thing that I found, because I have I have sought because I wanted to learn more, right? And I think that's the key is like the biggest thing that we agnostics talks about, like the whole thing, like if you could put we agnostics in two sentences, it's be open. That is it. We agnostics is just telling us be open. Be open to what is out there, be open to new experiences, be open to the experience you're going to have with this higher power, be open to the experience that you're going to have with others. Like I just have to be open because when I am closed minded, I shut myself off from everything and everyone. And so whenever I went through We Agnostics right after the whole spill about five and a half years sober, like when it was really broken down to me, like Erica, you don't have to figure anything out. All you have to do is be open that's when my relationship with God began to expand, right? Because I had kept God in a box for so long, like he took care of my alcoholism and that was it. What I've had to do is like, and, and my, my, my relationship with God is not very, you know, ritualistic, I guess is the word, um, where I'm like hitting my knees every day and praying and like saying this elaborate prayer or, you know, doing this elaborate journaling. Like I used to do all that all and all that stuff is great. Today, what I have, what I have found is like where, when I need to connect and where I need to connect is right now, right here in the present moment. And God doesn't expect a whole lot from me, right? Like God doesn't live in my past. God doesn't live in the future. Like God is right here, right now. And where I can connect, I can connect, I can connect to God right here, right now in this meeting. Like we have what, seven women on here that there's a power that is keeping all of us sober. Why else would it be on here at 9am on a Wednesday morning? right? Like there is some sort of power that is moving in a way that is miraculous, that is keeping all of us sober right here for this hour, for whatever reason. And that's the power I can connect to. That power can show up in so many ways. And so the coolest experience I had is (laughs) I have a lot of dark, dark times in sobriety. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of like, not, you know, like I said, life is not, life is not easy at all. And, and, and I think the biggest misconception that was given to me whenever I got sober was, you're going to get sober. You're going to work these steps. You're going to be on fire. You're going to sponsor these people. And you're just going to run with that. And life is going to be great and grand. 
And that has not been my experience at all. And I tell people that all the time because I don't want to get this misconception that it's unicorns and rainbows and butterflies because it's not. There's some hard times. Bill even warns us in his story of like, you know, it's on page 14 over to 15. It's my favorite reading. It says, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Meaning there are going to be trials and there are going to be low spots that come ahead. And it's going to be up to me and the sacrifices that I make through working with others and through doing work and practicing these principles in all my affairs that I'm going to be able to get through these hard times. Right. And so at six and a half years sober, I'd finally gotten over the hump and I was like, okay, AA is working and all this and that. And I just hit this really dark spot. And a lot of it had to do with the, the trauma that I was walking through. And, you know, I'm, I'm got the room dark and cold and like, I'm laying in bed, not wanting to do anything. And I end up like, I wasn't calling my sponsor. I wasn't doing any, I was just like, I was pretty at this point getting drunk. Wasn't the option. It was like, I'm done with life. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. I ended up going to a women's meeting that's right up the road from my house. And, um, I walked into that meeting and these women didn't know me, didn't, nothing right like they didn't know who I was they didn't know what was going on with me I walk in I sit down and like that's where I connected to the power of God because I I had strayed so far from like doing the things I needed to do to maintain you know my my spiritual growth that walking into that meeting sitting down and those women just coming up and just being there and hearing their stories and being able to be in that moment that's when I connected to the power of we which is another powerful connection that I connected to. And it was a big part of my story. And because of that, I decided to call my sponsor and do the things I needed to do, right? And so you'll hear people say sometimes that meetings aren't important. Some people say meetings are the most important thing. I can say meetings are a big part of what continues to push me forward, right? Doing things like this, jumping on, you know, different things, being able to connect in that power. You know, there are mornings where I'll read 86 through 88. There you know, it just looks very different from day to day because I used to do the same thing every day and I got, I got burnt out. I got tired of it. You know, there's things like movement meditation. Um, when you can't sit still, like finding a way to move and, and, and get going is, is another way that I do. Like whether I go for a walk and put, you know, some music on it, it doesn't have to be like Christian God music. It can be angry music if I'm feeling angry. Right. A lot of what I found as I've grown through sobriety is like, I need to identify what I feel and be willing to sit in that uncomfortability of that feeling, not have to go change it, not have to go to the next thing. Like, how do I sit and, and, and be uncomfortable and be okay with being uncomfortable, but also finding action to take. It's not about just sitting in it and falling into self-pity. There's action that has to come with it and not action to change the way that I feel, but action to keep me moving forward to where I can, I can do life on life's terms because the 12 steps are not in place for me to become perfect. That is not, it's not like, oh, I'm gonna work these 12 steps and I'm gonna become perfect. What's gonna happen is, is I work these 12 steps and they give me tools for when I fall short. It gives me tools for when I fail. It gives me tools that I don't have to go drink over it anymore. And so the biggest thing that I can take away from, from doing this work is I have to practice these principles in all my affairs. Step 12, very important step. A lot of people miss that there are two parts to that step. First part is I have to carry the message, right? I have to be able to go out and be willing to like carry the message to other women and help them recover too. But the biggest key in that is, is I have to be willing to put into practical application the tools that I've learned. I have to be able to say, it's not just about writing inventory. It's not just about making amends. It's not just about doing that stuff. It's about the principles that I'm gaining from this. What am I doing to apply it in my life to become better? And not better as like a professionist, perfectionist way, but to be better for myself, right? And sometimes that's cutting back on some things, like not being a perfectionist, not, not overindulging in food, like those kind of things, right? Like I have to look at, and I have to ask myself, like, this is the biggest thing, because one of the things that I learned in recovery is I will walk away and I will take other people's belief systems and make them my own. And what I have to do is I have to ask myself, what do I believe? Why, why do I believe that? Why is this something that I think is important to me? Is it because my parents told me it was, is it because I heard it in AA? Is it because my friends think that way? Like, what is it for me? And what do I need to do to grow with my higher power? And how does that need to look like? And with that, that, that helps me in my relationship with God, because if I don't have to be a standard to what other people believe and I can be myself, then I can connect. 
anytime that I'm not being myself and I'm not being true to myself is when I find that disconnect because I think I need to be somewhere or do something different. So hopefully that answers yes. the question. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. And one of the things that I ask the women and our accountability all the time is, are you practicing principles in all your affairs? Because I'll say like, what does 10, 11, and 12 look like? And so often it's like, I'm sponsoring, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And so I'll be like, okay, are you practicing principles in all your affairs? You know? And so like, I love that you, uh, that you hit on that. And then when you were talking about being true to yourself, because another thing that's been coming up so much for me and the women around me, and I, I also try to bring in accountability is, is that authenticity, right? Um, and the importance of honesty in the program. And, and part of the honesty is the transparency and being authentic. Um, and so I just love the fact that, because if I'm not being authentic, I don't feel that either. Yep. You know, I, like it's just, I, I can't. Um, and so I love that. Well, before I ask the wrap up question, um, does anybody have a question? Okay. I feel like this has been so good, but um, I want to ask you, what has been the biggest gift that you've gotten from your recovery the biggest one all right you can uh, say like more than one if you want <laughs> i'm like that's hard so probably so i grew up very very poor right like i didn't have anything i didn't have really much of a family it was very dysfunctional you know i didn't have compassion for others or empathy for others nor you know like if you would have asked me whenever i was 15 years old if i was going to have kids i would have told you absolutely not and so like the biggest thing that the program has probably given me a, other than the relationship with God and being sober, obviously, um, is the life that I have today with the family that I have in the house that I live in. Um, the fact that I'm able to love my son and be able to give him a different life than what I grew up in. And then also my husband's kids being able to give them something different to where their kids don't have to grow up in what we grew up in. Um, the fact that like today I get to own my own business, um, and create my own schedule. Like that was one of the big, I remember whenever I first got sober, I'm like, I hate being on other people's schedule. I want to have my own schedule. And like, I worked towards that and like pressed into God with it. And today that's what I have. And so like, I think the biggest thing outside of the materialistic stuff is the perception I have today. The perception that I have today is that like, God's not going to do it for me. He's not. If he did, he would have got me sober a long time ago and I would have never done this. Do I need God? Absolutely. But if I want something in life and I put in the work and I put in the effort and I stay close to my, to my higher power, like God makes it happen every time. Everything that I have today, I thought about it. The house, I, the neighborhood that we live in five years ago, we said, we're going to move into that neighborhood. We worked towards it. We brought God into it. And lo and behold, God made it happen. Right? Like I had to be willing to take the action. And so my perception, taking materialistic things aside, my perception of anything that I want to have today, I can achieve it. It's just going to take a little bit of work and it's going to take me pressing into God is the most beautiful thing that I could have because for so long, I felt I didn't deserve those things. I felt that I wasn't good enough to have nice things. I felt that I wasn't good enough to have a good family. I felt that I, was, I wasn't good enough to be a good mom, right? Like I didn't deserve those things. And that belief system held me back probably for the first six years of my sobriety. And once I discovered to let that piece go, because it tells me like, and, and how it works. And, you know, we talked about being honest with ourselves, right? Being truly authentic. There's a reason why on the back of the coin, when you pick up a, an annual coin, it says to thine own self be true. I have to be true to myself. And so with that being said, I, you know, I, I get to do the things that I get to do today. And, and my perception has changed because of that. And that's the most beautiful gift that I have. That's awesome. And I love your family. You have such a great family, by the way. Okay, one more question before I ask the wrap-up question. Because whenever you were talking about being a good mom, I don't know if you remember this. I just think I'm so special that all my sponsors should remember everything about me. But um, one of my biggest fears, because you were, you were sponsoring me around the time that I got my daughter back. And one of the biggest fears that I had was being a shit mom. And I remember one time it was like consistently showing up on my nightly and you, you asked me, you said, okay, I want you to say, what does a shit mom look like? And, you know, you asked me another thing, like, what is enough today? Like, what does enough look like today? And so can you talk about showing up as a mom 
in recovery and still having that fear of not being a good enough mom? Absolutely. I deal with it all the time. And plus I have stepkids, so it makes it even worse. So, so for me, and inventory is what saves me on this every time. Right. So like, especially with my own kiddo, like with Corbin, when I'm feeling like I'm failing as a parent or when I feel like I'm, I'm a bad mom, right. That label that I give myself, um, I have to look at the fear. And whenever I look at like how I'm setting the ball rolling nine times out of 10, it's because I'm not taking the time out to like be there with my kid or I'm not, um, I'm not spending that one-on-one. And, and a lot of time I'm, I'm very busy. I have a very busy schedule. Anybody that knows me knows that a lot of time I forget that the time that I need to spend with my kids is quality over quantity. Like my kid doesn't need a whole lot of time. He just needs that time and my undivided attention. And, and a lot of the time where I feel like I fail is in that regard or whenever they're mad at me, right? Like I hate when my kids are mad at me. Um, anybody else, I really don't care. Cause I'm like, dude, that's you. These kids, they don't know how to write inventory yet. Um, so I'm like, you know, I wish they would write some inventory and figure it out for themselves. But with my kids, because I'm emotionally attached, I don't want them to be angry. I don't want them to be mad at me. I want them to love me and all those things. And so what I have to remind myself is, is just because they're mad and angry at me, doesn't mean that they don't love me. Like I've had my kid, my kid's in this stage where he hates everything. Mom, I hate you. Okay. Um, and, and I have to write inventory on my kid. I'm like, this little brat, like I do all this stuff. And you're going to tell me that you hate me. Well, you can go buy your own PS4 games. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, because I, I, I get very selfish in that. But inventory helps me see like what I need to do or what I need to continue to do. Because if I'm not aware of how I'm showing up, a lot of times that's where that fear will creep in. And sometimes I just got to combat the thought of like, Erica, you are a good mom. You show up for your kid. You've been here for your kids since day one. You make sure you go above and beyond. You drop whatever you're doing to make sure your kid's taken care of. And usually when I can weigh out those facts of what I do as a parent today versus what I, who I was, you know, 10 years ago, that can weigh that stuff out, right? but I have to be willing to combat those thoughts and it's a practice. And this goes back to practicing those principles. Like it is a practice. Like if I gave you a baseball bat and a baseball and told you to go out there and knock out 20 home runs and you've never played baseball in your life, you're not going to be able to do it. But if you go out there every day and start swinging that bat and hitting that ball, you'll be able to start hitting some home runs. And eventually you'll get to that 20 because you've practiced every day. You've built up endurance. You've built up strength. It's the same thing in this program. I have to take these tools and I have to apply it in every aspect of my life as a wife, as a mother, as a friend, as a sponsor, as a sponsee, as an employer, as an employee, all those areas that I have to show up in, I have to take this and I have to practice it. The biggest thing that I can say though is because for, if you're like me and a perfectionist, I will go to the extreme of this. I also have to allow myself grace to fall short. I have to allow myself grace to like not show up as a 110% best mom in the world. Like I have to, you know, like last night, I just went off on my, my stepkid for the decision he's making because I was in fear. But what I was able to do is I was able to clean that up really quick and make the amends and say, Hey, I'm not mad at you. I'm just in fear right now. And because I'm in fear, I said those things and that wasn't okay. What I'm willing to do is I'm willing to work on myself and my stuff and not let my fear bleed into your life. And because I have those tools today and because I have those principles today, we were able to go to bed last night, not mad at each other, not hating each other but able to walk away and say, okay, everybody's in fear here. And because everybody's in fear, everybody's acting irrationally. So let's like, let's pause from this and let's, let's revisit it another time. And those are the things that life can give you today because of the principles. Thank you. All right. So my wrap up question is if you could leave us with one takeaway, um, whether it's going to be the people who listen, women getting sober, women staying sober, what would, if you don't hear anything I say, hear this, what would you want to leave? Well, what keeps coming to mind is like extend grace for yourself and others. It's okay to fall short. It's okay to fail. I know for me, like the biggest thing is, is I, I used to be so afraid of failure. And because I was so afraid of failure, like I wouldn't try anything like take the risk and try to, and do the best that you can in, in, in fighting through that failure, right? Because we're all going to fail. We're all going to fall short, whatever area of life that looks like, whether that be, you know, your home life, your work life, um, whether it's a career change, whether it's, you know, a home group change, whether it's in your recovery, whatever the case may be, like take the risk and show yourself some grace and just know like you're going to fall short and failure is not the end of it. Failure is a part of the success. 
And so if there's chronic relapsers out there that continue to relapse, but get back on these meetings and get back on, like those are success stories too. It doesn't matter about the extent of time. It's just a matter about what we're doing today to grow in our lives, to get closer to God. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, I totally enjoyed this call. It was always so good to see you and talk to you. So yes, you too. Um, thank, thank you so much. I love you. All right. I love um, you. All right. I will see everyone later. All bye. right. Bye guys. Thank y'all. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.